0: Hello and welcome to Extra Grim, the show within a show where we delve a little deeper into the world of the Brothers Grimm. This episode, we interview esteemed fairy tale academic and Brothers Grimm expert Jack Zipes. So come join us, pop another log on the fire, sit back, relax and enjoy.
1: hello 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 welcome to extra grim where we we delve we delve deep into the world of the brothers Grimm. for i've already said that matt the, yeah but this i just <laughs> want to make it very clear this is for proper grim nerds people who are really interested because we we go deep in extra grim and this episode in particular we're going extra deep because we're interviewing as you have already said professor jack zipes jack zipes we got Jack Zipes. We got him. On the line. We did it. We got him. We did it. I suppose some listeners who are quite into their fairy tales will, I would say, definitely know who he is. But if you don't know who he is, uh, Jack Zipes is a retired professor of German and comparative literature at the University of Minnesota. He's published a huge amount on fairy tales and folklore, specifically the Brothers Grimm, has been his area of expertise, including. Breaking the Magic Spell, Radical Theories of Folk and Fairy Tales, Fairy Tales and the Art of Subversion, Why Fairy Tales Stick, The Evolution and Relevance of a Genre, The Brothers Grimm, From Enchanted Forest to the Modern World, and The Irresistible Fairy Tale, The Cultural and Social History of a Genre. So yeah, he is an authority on the Grimm's, perhaps the most well-known Grimm scholar, In 2014, he translated the very first edition of the Brothers Grimm Fairy Tales, the 1812 one, for the very first time in English for the bicentenary of the um, uh, publication of Kindu and Hausmarken. So that, I mean, that's quite a big deal in itself.
0: Oh, it's a huge deal. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And yeah, we have just done the interview, haven't we? We have. We're just, um, yeah,
0: still on the Zoom call. He's he's gone, but... um, We're lingering. It was... (laughs) we're lingering afterwards it was it was fun it was absolute pleasure and um, for him to give up his time he touched on a lot of things I think didn't he touched on memetics yeah he touched on the role of fairy tales in sort of dealing with like taboo and sort of really emotionally charged themes and uh, how they can be used to sort of tackle um, cultural issues what else did he talk about? Donald Trump came up. That was interesting. Yeah. I mean, you have to wait, wait for that to come yeah. up in the episode. But um, it, it certainly was a conversation that uh, went in several different directions. We covered a lot of different topics. Hegelian philosophy. Anyone? <laughs> yeah. Never <laughs> thought that would come up.
1: <laughs> it, for anyone who's heard our Maria Tatar interview. So we did a, an interview with another professor last year. This was a little bit different. Oh, yeah it was different yeah because we had a a bit of back and forth with Jack about what to talk about and in the end he kind of we didn't plump for the kind of standard interview where we just ask questions and he responds he he was quite keen to talk about his 2017 book The Sorcerer's Apprentice an anthology of magical tales which is about a a particular type of tale uh, which for the Brothers Grimm was the thief and his master it's these stories about um A pupil and a master and the kind of battle between them would you say yeah exactly so he kind of wants to talk about that and that led us on to talking about yeah richard dawkins uh theory of the selfish gene and and memes which was a a nice surprise
0: that was lovely yeah to talk about that and um i didn't it's one really interesting point was uh I did know that's where the meme came from, was was Richard Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene. However, it never occurred to me. My brain had never made that connection. Mm. As The the, the actual etymology of the word meme, the the idea that it comes from memory.
1: Yeah, I know.
0: That that totally blew my mind.
1: Yeah, that was a basic, wasn't it? I mean, I didn't think we'd be talking about memes. We're not talking about memes in the sense of, you know, um, (laughs) hey, girl, (laughs) or... uh, (laughs) What's another (laughs) meme? I don't know memes.
0: Not talking about memes is uh, yeah pictures and text that get circulated on Reddit. (laughs) (laughs) We're
1: talking about uh, the the original concept, little cultural units. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Um, and then that led us in so many directions. A tantalizing glimpse of Harry Potter. I think he has a lot of thoughts on Harry Potter, but that didn't quite emerge. I think a few things just to say in advance. Some quite uh, intense topics are discussed. Yes. uh, Including things like sexual violence, just so you're aware.
0: Yeah, just flagging that at the beginning, yeah.
1: And also the interview is quite spoiler-tastic, I'd say, for stories that we haven't yet read. In particular, Red Riding Hood comes up a lot. Now, for anyone who really likes the format of Grim Reading, (laughs) where we... That's a good point. We don't know anything about the story until we read them. There's quite a lot of chat about uh, Red Riding Hood and another Brothers Grimm tale from Volume 2 called The Cat and the Miller or something like that.
0: Yeah, that's, I guess, less of a concern. We'll get to that eventually. (laughs) I mean, I guess in this instance, I'm blessed with a a terrible memory. So hopefully (laughs) um, when it comes (laughs) time for us to do Red Riding Hood, it's not going to spoil it too much for me. Yeah. But, um, But it's worth it. Oh, it's absolutely worth it. It's worth it to uh, to get this great chat mm. with, uh, with Jack. And he actually started off the conversation by reading an excerpt from his uh, 2017 book, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, an anthology of magical tales. We're handing over to Jack. Take it away.
2: So, you uh, know, after more than... 15 years have passed. I'm still wondering why a conventional series of fantasy novels such as the Harry Potter books has had such a phenomenal success. I purposely used the adverb still because I had tentatively proposed an answer to my own puzzlement in 2000 when I published Sticks and Stones, the troublesome success of children's literature from *Slovenly Peter to Harry Potter. I claim, and I'm sort of quoting from that book, Mm -hmm. claiming there is something wonderfully paradoxical about the phenomena surrounding the phenomenon of the Harry Potter books. For if anything is to become a phenomenon in Western society, it must first be recognized as unusual, extraordinary, remarkable, and outstanding. In other words, it must be popularly accepted, praised, or condemned, worthy of everyone's attention. It must conform to the standards of exception set by the mass media and promoted by the cultural industry in general. Now, to be phenomenal means that a person or commodity must conform to the tastes of hegemonic groups that determine what makes for a phenomenon. In short, it is impossible to be phenomenal without conforming to conventionality. Whether you are a super athlete actor, writer or commodity, and there is tremendous overlap in all these categories, you must be displayed and display yourself according to socially accepted rules and expectations of phenomenality. In American and British culture, the quality of what rises to the top is always suspect. And if the phenomenon does somehow contain some qualities that are truly different, they will be bound to be corroded and degraded, turned against itself and into an ordinary commodity that will reap huge profits until the next phenomenon appears on the horizon. Now that's all from my previous book. Now, I am not about to recant this critique. (laughs) I love this critique. Uh, In fact, I could even elaborate and deepen it by discussing how the network of publicity and hyping forms and determines meanings in contemporary cultures throughout the world, and that the Harry Potter novels do not have an inherent meaning, but meaning bestowed upon it by a massive web of fanzines, mass mediated publicity, toy and other commodity manufacturers, the film industry and the creation of myths about J.K. Rowling herself and the origin of her novels, which are to be sure well-written and readily accessible to the common reader viewer. But Rowling complies and had to comply to the conventions of the culture industry. After all, popular culture is no longer made popular by the popolo, but by those forces that influence and manipulate how people will receive commodified forms of culture and react or should react. That being said, I've recognized that there's something significant that escaped my attention when I first began endeavoring to explain why the Harry Potter novels had such a mammoth success. And I want to try now to take a much different approach that has, I believe, ramifications for understanding the deep roots of children's literature and popular culture, not just for understanding the success of the Harry Potter novels and their paraphernalia. And this also applies to the Brothers Grimm and the Grimm's Mm -hmm. tales. I want to propose that the Harry Potter novels hark back to stories told and written down about magicians and their apprentices during and before the Greco-Roman period in Europe and the Middle East. And such great dissemination was noticed already in the 19th century by the great British folklorist, William Alexander Closton, when he wrote, and I'm quoting him, the stem of what Mr. Baring Gould, another great British folklorist, terms the magical conflict root has spread its branches far and wide in the shape of popular fictions in which two or more persons possessing nearly equal powers of changing themselves into whatever forms they please, engage in a life or death struggle. It seems to me that popular belief in men capable of acquiring such powers should sufficiently account for the universal prevalence of stories of this class without seeking for their origin in primitive conceptions of the phenomena of physical nature, such as sunrise, sunset, clouds, lightning, and so forth." End of quote. Indeed, these tales were widely disseminated over centuries by word of mouth and script until they became mimetic, forming a memeplex in Western cultural memory and expressing and touching upon core human dispositions and drives for knowledge and power that are related to the adaptation and survival of the human species. Underlying my thesis is the notion that black and white magic are two sides of the same coin of erudite knowledge gained from an immense and intense scientific study of the material universe and knowers of the very basic elements of our world. The magicians, sorcerers, wizards, witches, inventors, shamans, scientists, medicine men, priests, priestesses, and politicians. They have discovered miraculous ways to use black and white magic to transform themselves and their environments in ways that most people cannot. In seeking to gain omniscience, and immortality. Sorcerers reveal that their success depends morally on whether they will share their magic knowledge to benefit the people, or whether they will use their magic knowledge to dominate the people of the world. These sorcerers are all powerful shapeshifters and they represent what we all want and cannot obtain unless we live in fairy tales that we project. So I want to talk about the Harry Potter novels as a fairy tale, for it is in these novels viewed as a gigantic fairy tale that we can see its relationship to ATU 325, a tale type, called The Magician and His Pupil, as noted in Hans-Jörg Utz's book, The Types of International Folk Tales, which is a very useful catalog that helps researchers trace the origins and dissemination of tales with similar plots. Then I want to briefly to note how deeply the type of The Magician and His Pupil has been rooted in European and Middle Eastern folklore. And and we can talk about it when we talk about uh, two versions in the Grimm's tales, although there are more versions than just the two versions that we will be talking about, the poor Miller's apprentice and the thief and his master. So to get back to this, the magician and his pupil has been rooted in European and Middle Eastern folk since the fourth century BC, if not earlier, and was adapted as part of the staple of children's literature sometime during the late 19th century, thanks to the transformation of the Grimm's tales as tales for children, and later thanks to Disney's 1940 film and book version of The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Aside from noting the importance of tale type ATU three two five as the basic pattern in Harry Potter no- the Harry Potter novels, I want to discuss uh, some other significant works in the Grimm's collection. And finally, I want to talk a great deal more about the whole notion of mimetics and what a meme is and why that is so significant. Even though many people I think i'm crazy nowadays for using that in, in my works so that's sort of what i wanted to do as to introduce you know our, our discussion today and uh leave it to you uh, so we can maybe pick up on some of the themes that i've introduced
1: fantastic thank you so much jack um i there was so much in there i it's it's hard to know where to start i i I think, obviously, it's interesting The Harry Potter is always going to be interesting, especially as Adam's just read Harry Potter, finally. Um, <laughs> <laughs> for the
0: first time in the last year, so yeah, it's a, a fresh one for me.
1: I think maybe a good place to start is to talk about memetics um, and memes and, and how they yes. apply to fairy tales or how you've applied them to fairy tales. Yeah, would you yes. be able to sort of elaborate yeah. on that a bit?
2: Yes. Yeah. Uh, in 1976, Richard Dawkins, uh, the famous um, British one of you, your set, <laughs> uh, wrote a book called The Selfish Gene. And in that book, uh, he it was a breakthrough uh, in science, demonstrated that uh, we are heavily influenced by the genes we inherit w- with which we're born. And, uh, and he goes through uh, the sort of development of genes in, in a person's bodies. And at the very end of the book, in the last chapter, he says, and this is a big was a big surprise to everyone. In the very last chapter, he says, well, not only are there genes in our bodies, but there are memes. And I, I love the term that he did. he he's the one who who invented this term. I love it because it involves the notion of memory mem you know mm. memes as sort of items of memory. But he didn't. Uh, describe it that way, but that's uh, why I like the, I just love, love the term. So, and he argued that there are bits of information that actually, there's a part of our brain which stores bits of information that are relevant to the survival of the species, to the survival of the human body, to the survival of people. And that uh, these bits of information could be a, a color, it could be a phrase, it could be a song, it could be, who knows it, a car, is there, you, you name it. Uh, if it sticks in your brain, in your memory, and if you will recognize it immediately, like let me give you a, a quick example of an experiment I've done. Whenever I travel and meet with young people and go into schools and do storytelling, I ask whether it be in Slovenia, <laughs> Texas, uh, Japan, and so on. I always ask, How many of you know Little Red Riding Hood? Okay. Uh, and this is just a class of like seven or eight or nine year olds. 90% of them will raise their hand. Mm -hmm. And, and this is really highly significant. Because why is it that this Red Riding Hood will automatically is registered that the people who have never read it or anything will will say that they they know it. And of course, they don't know the the various versions Mm -hmm. and, and so on and so forth. So for me, That sort of reinforces, to a great extent, what uh, what Dawkins wrote. That is, there is something in all cultures in the world that are almost universal. Not not all of them are universal. Uh, Some things will become more memetic than others in one culture than another. But the fact is that there is some compartment in our brains that stores uh, significant bits of information so that we can try to deal and resolve problems that we have. Now, the problem, and one of the reasons I argue about using Little Red Riding Hood is that it's all about rape. The tale, and people don't have never, I mean, ever since my writing and other people's writings as early as the 1960s, uh, and followed up with uh, Angela Carter, whom you both of you have to read, of course. Uh, feminists have easily recognized that this is a tale about the violation of a young girl when she goes into a forest by a man, not a wolf, of course. And uh, the tale sometimes ends on a happy note, and sometimes ends she's just eaten up because she is was naive or stupid or whatever. So, uh, I began thinking when I read Dawkins, and uh, I discovered him late, Uh, I I didn't discover him in 1976 when his book came out, but uh, something drew me (laughs) to Dawkins, not that he's mimetic or anything like that. (laughs) He's a very smart, wonderful guy, it seems to me. Uh, I've never met him, but I've seen him. Mm. And... um, so I began thinking, doing research about memetics and memes, and there's a huge now. There's there may be a hundred or more books out there, literally dealing, criticizing, saying memetics is really is mm. not a science at all, or those who uh, the uh, various American scholars have demonstrated very clearly. Uh, that it is a very good scientific term and so on and so forth. It, 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 it probably this debate will never resolve itself, but uh, I, I myself am convinced uh, that these means that are essential are means that stay with us. In other words, something might become very sort of spectacular and unusual and stick and, and be popular you know, quickly, like I was talking about how the culture industry works. Mm. It it throws things out. Everybody is attracted, but only for a short time and it dies. But Little Red Riding Hood hasn't died. Hansel and Gretel has not died. And so I'm I'm using the grim tales because I Mm. I could use French tales or so or or Greek tales. uh, Or actually, I could even use Indian tales. And uh, that will also sort of reinforce my notion that certain tale types reflect a stay in power. And then we have to look as good historical materialists, we have to say, what are the conditions that uh, enable these tales to go on and continue to have an effect on us in different ways? And, and you can see it in musicals like Into the Woods. You can see, see it in tons of films with the title, just simply Little Red Riding Hood, but there are many other films uh, that use the motif of Little Red Riding Hood. So people have always sort of tossed fairy tales on the side or, or sort of in a mocking way, oh, that's just a fairy tale and so on. But that's stupid because the, the traces of culture that uh, uh, are there for a reason. And and it's up to us to really use our brains to try to understand, you know, why, why do we have this genre, uh, which we can't really def- define and it, it, it defies definition. Uh, but th- we do have this genre, fairy tale, folk tale, and so on. And we owe it you know, to the words we use in our daily living. We owe it to make sure that these words are there for the appropriate reason. Uh, and I'm not talking here about uh, in, in any sense in being a type of rationalist, but I am a practical uh, sort of critic. And, and I'm drawn to the magic of these stories that uh, for me i think are highly significant so that's why i i i don't reiterate uh, let us say I'm done, i i am more or less done with showing in, in the book that i wrote uh, the sorcerer's apprentice a collection of magical tales that i think it's the best book i've ever written and 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 it's been disregarded oh no i think it's my fault because normally in the series that i do for princeton or any of the books i try to keep the introductions short but in this this particular book because i incorporate so much material in the introduction is over 100 pages and i didn't want i really want people to jump into the tales first and i had talked to my editor and said, why don't we make it an afterwards?" She said, no, you've got to explain everything. I said, okay. (laughs) And and so I think we're paying for that right now because uh, I'd love to have a debate, a whole conference on mimetics and literature. Uh, No, nobody has done that yet. And and of Mm. course, the virus has not been favorable with regard to anything Mm. like this. Mm -hmm.
0: Of course. It's a fascinating thing. Would I be right in saying Essentially, do you think maybe the ATU system of classification, in fact, you have got these types of tails uh, which can be grouped together. It's almost like a proof of the concept of mimetics.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. That's a good point. I mean, and mm-hmm. they, I mean the tail types were written for other reasons. They're very, and it's, you know, it's been revised twice. The latest is 2004 by Hans-Jörg Uther. And it, it, there are three volumes, and I use the valuable uh, information in these in these three books. And yes, they are the proof. You, you know, for a long time, I think folklorists have been interested in the origins of the of particular tales. Well, the fact is uh, that we can't do that. I, I mean, we can when we talk about literary fairy tales, like we can talk about. E.T.A. Hoffmann or Hans Christian Andersen and so on. And since we know them as human beings, uh, we could do some therapy and uh, psychoanalyze them. And, you know, and it's valid. Uh, but what we can't do uh, is establish, even though uh, there have been major attempts uh, by folklorists, to establish, you know, where did a particular tale originate from. And my my feeling is that you can answer that very easily by saying, well, you know, it was something like uh, about 200,000 years ago, human beings developed the capability of, of uh, speaking and they lived in tribes or small communities. So what happens when, uh, you know, people, they don't have TVs or anything at night. They generally would gather together and tell stories and sing or do other things. We know all about that. Uh, we Again, we don't have exact dates about particular things, but we have to imagine, and here's where science has to use its imagination. Uh, we have to imagine that a man went out And killed some sort of animal, and comes back and boasts about it, and and says, uh, you know, uh, I want to tell you how I killed it, and uh, killed this particular animal, and and will say, girls, you may not go out there, otherwise you will be eaten, because I've seen a girl eaten by one of these animals, Mm -hmm. and you know, exaggerates his fame Mm -hmm. or or what he said, but what I'm saying is that uh, people told stories, you know, thousands of years ago to or in oral traditions about uh, a lot of the same problems that we have still today because we haven't resolved them. Uh, child abandonment, that was very common, very common in, uh, in thousand, going back thousands of years, when an unwanted child would be placed in front of a temple and the people would run away or they would kill the the baby. Uh, So all of these things have a way metaphorically, metaphorically uh, to be carried forth and they stick with us Mm. because of the fact that we have not really taken care of major conflicts in our society, uh, in our species, that have to be addressed, still addressed in different ways, perhaps, but they have to be addressed. And mm-hmm. so that's where the fairy tale is a short, it's its a uh, these short uh, sort of genres like the legend, the fable, the fairy tale, and so on, are very important because they're compact. And, and they let us get at the heart of the matter right away, metaphorically, mind you, mm-hmm. And uh, and we can talk about anything. And so, you know, stories in particular about rape uh, was sort of, you know, Red Riding Hood gets away with it. We can tell stories to two year olds uh, about Little Red Riding Hood and it will register in their brains early. And we don't have to talk, you know, scare them. We do scare them to a certain extent with the creature, the wolf or a werewolf. Uh, sometimes it's a werewolf. Uh, so that's why, for me, uh, probably because I've written on many other things. Uh, I, I'm not a folklorist. <laughs> People think I am, uh, but I'm, I'm self-educated, and I write on, uh, for instance, uh, uh, Germans and Jews. I've written, you know, written my own tales. I've written plays and and other things. Of course my favorite are the Brothers Grimm and I feel like the fifth or sixth brother (laughs) because I've worked on them for so many years. And that's why when you contacted me, I said, Oh my God, the Brothers Grimm again, let's do something (laughs) slightly different. Uh, So that's where we're at right now.
1: Mm -hmm. That's absolutely fascinating. So I suppose in a way, are you suggesting that, um, you. Like we ask you know where do these stories come from in a way you know on some level of course that's relevant but what's relevant is how they resonate now and how they've resonated through history because they're telling us something about how we're living now they're they're relevant and that they contain a a message something that's useful and that's why it spreads memetically because it's it has use it has uh does that make sense
2: yes you've you you hit it right on the nail mm. so so you're absolutely right we we, we do take these tales from the past, but we sort of shape them slightly different or make in some ways much different. Uh, like again, Angela Carter, uh, bases her version of Little Red Riding Hood uh, actually on a uh, <coughs> version that goes way, that we ha- do have proof in uh, that comes from the 16th century. But she, of course, changed it a great deal and makes it much more interesting with regard to language uh, the language we use today and these her ironic black humor and so on so it's it's different and yet also speaking to the same problem, uh-huh. but it's a different age. We live in a different so we have to use our language, the technology, whatever we have uh, to reinforce the theme in a way that might enable us to resolve things, to talk about things openly. And then if one day, and it won't happen in my lifetime, but if one day we get rid of, in all societies, violation of women, then why, we won't have to tell that story. Mm. Uh, we might have, to, well, we might have to tell a story that shows how, how we managed to end it. We're moving there. Uh, you know, uh, women are, are, are fighting, uh, have become much more autonomous and, and have uh, opened up gaps in the cultures in many different societies, including in the Middle East, where women are, are treated shabbily. Uh, not that they're treated too much better in the Western world, but uh, so, and we have in the United States right now, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter movement, Mm. which is becoming more and more effective. And uh, people who know a great deal about demographics believe that in America uh, by 2050, uh, the whites will not be uh, dominant uh, in the United States. So things will change, are, are going to change, but let's hope that in these changes, that these equality changes, which deal with directly the unfair, unjust ways others in the minority groups have been treated. The problem is that sometimes uh, when one particular group that's been poorly treated comes back, comes into power, then imitates or, or uses like what's going on in Min, Min, Minmo or Burma, I, I still use the term Burma. But, you know, terrible things are going on there. Uh, because even though some democracy crept in for a while or seemed to be creeping in, it's now once again an autocratic state in which thousands of people have been killed. <laughs>
1: Fantastic. well i'd really like to hear um about um the Sorcerer's apprentice tale type now and, you, and your yes. book about that i think that's uh fascinating we've we've read the thief and his master and we particularly enjoyed the transformation chase that has uh loomed large in the podcast as a particularly favorite <laughs> moment um but yeah I, if you could just talk to us about the Sorcerer's apprentice and also uh, you know in m- m- mimetic terms how what's useful about it or what is what's it telling us what's important and uh And also, yeah, if we get to it, Harry Potter as well, that would be interesting.
2: (laughs) Sure. Well, I I think we'll leave Harry Potter aside for now. Sure. (laughs) But uh, um, first of all, it it should be noted that uh, even today, apprentices all over the world uh, play a, a very important role in our lives. And I should also like to cite, I don't know to what extent I'll get get to this, but uh, philosophically, the uh, sorcerer's apprentice is uh, related to the master apprentice uh, theory that was developed uh, by different philosophers in the 19th century. Uh, I'll come back to that. Uh, Okay. So uh, essentially, as as societies developed, let's stay with Europe because that's what I know best. Uh, Western Europe and America. Uh, they uh, most societies developed a system of uh, promoting peasant, young peasant boys or boys from the lower classes uh, as workers, and they quite often had to travel. Let's stay with the medieval times and the early Renaissance times in Europe. So there were always fairly large families uh no matter what social class you came from and young men uh because there weren't enough jobs in the family or uh, on the farm or uh in in a small industry uh they had to travel and they had to learn and they went from town to town offering their skills whether they were a tailor uh or a, a woodsman, or a woodcutter or became a smith, uh, things like that. So the tales about young uh, apprentices in the uh, Grimm's versions and and other versions reflect the type of life that young boys had in particular during the 18th and 19th centuries, but probably for much longer than that. And, And one could say even, Today, uh, my 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 son-in-law has been cast <laughs> cast away from his job, and he has to as a new apprentice has to look for another job in the same type of trade, and so on. And it's humiliating. It can be humiliating. That is, these tales tend to reflect the way people learn, and uh, or or are brought up to learn, uh, and. In one way, the apprentice, uh, let us say, a good master, will want to be replaced. For instance, that, that in my own, my my own work in life, uh, I've tried to encourage all my students, or so-called apprentices, to replace me. To uh, not in any vicious competition or or so but it gives me great joy and will give me great joy if one of my students uh, becomes, in quotes, famous or invents this or that or something like that. And so that's an attitude that we can see in some of these tales of the apprentice and and the master. Uh, We can see a sort of positive relationship but for the most part, the, ma- the major tales are tales in which the apprentices have to become rebellious uh, so that they can become autonomous because the master wants to impede the development of the apprentice. And therefore, there's a struggle in which quite often the master loses. And in, in most of the tales about the apprentice who is rebellious. It's a tale in, 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 in which a young boy, whether he learns magic or whether he, but for the most part, it's learning to transform yourself, which is a kind of education. In, in almost all of the tales, what the master is hiding is the magic of transformation, or how do you become somebody different than than you were when you began, have more knowledge and can use that knowledge to fend off the evil exploitation of the master. And so um, in in the historical research that I did, I found that most of the tales uh, that, and I tried to collect both the tales about the apprentices who become humiliated and stay humiliated. And I've tried to collect tales in which apprentices became rebellious. And, and it's what is fascinating that up through today, almost all the tales, uh, I would say 90% of the tales I've managed to collect, and I read many different languages, have been uh, tales about the rebellious uh, apprentice. And that, to a certain extent, is because we do live in a cutthroat capitalist systems. And in cutthroat capitalist systems, uh, you, you want to maintain your power and you generally try to kill anybody who wants to compete with you. That's, that, that's sort of a very blunt way to describe the capitalist system. But in fact, that's the way the capitalist system works. That even in sports, you want to, in quotes, slaughter the, uh, po- your, your opponent. And we use terms like that. Uh, and it's scary to a certain extent. So uh, in the Grimm's, uh, the two versions that that we were talking about, the Pormillus apprentice and the cat and the thief and his master. In the thief and his master, we have, I would say, the shortest, one of the shortest versions of the typical sort of rebellious uh, apprentice. Uh, It's one in which uh, it seems at first, a a joke is being played upon a, a particular a peasant and uh, and his son and in the end uh, it turns out that the son has learned all the magic and knows that he cannot use the magic for good things escapes joins his father and then has this conflict uh with his old master and and then uh he turns into a fa- uh, he learns how to turn into a a fox, and eats the head of the master who had changed himself into a chick. So the brutality uh, of the tale, uh, which ends in in quotes, in a quote, happy ending, is a little hard to take, and yet uh, the the, uh, philosopher, uh, I'm uh, I'm trying to remember, a very important thing. I don't know why I'm. I'm sort of blacking out on the really highly significant.
1: Oh, I don't think we can help. I'm afraid. Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a
2: master. The 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 notion that was developed by this particular philosopher, uh, whom I, uh, it's, I, I'm having trouble locating his name in my in my brain. At any anyway, rate. He developed in the 19th century uh, on the Book of Phenomenology. Maybe one of you can look it up, uh, Phenomenology, and then History of Phenomenology in the 19th century. At any rate, in that particular book, he developed uh, a a whole chapter that dealt with the way masters, and not slaves, but masters and uh, farmers who were beholden to him as to who owned their land and they would sort of farm the land. Uh, he developed a whole chapter called the master-slave or master-patron uh, relationship. And in that book, he shows that there is a dialectic that uh, is developed. He was interested in, in the theory of dialectics.
1: Was it and Hegel? In
2: Yes. Thank you, George. <laughs> thank you. No, no, I you. So Hegel's book of phenomenology uh, wanted to show uh, to what extent the uh, dialectics can help us understand how uh, society uh, functions. And what he meant by this was saying that it, when we look at dialectics, uh, a theory is proposed. And, then, and that theory is then, uh, generally speaking, a counter-theory evolves, uh, developed by other people. And the theory and the counter-theory are in conflict with one another. And generally speaking, in dialectics, when that conflict ha- happens, a new theory ge- is generated through out of the conflict that is different from, that carries on parts of one and parts of the other theories. And eventually, uh, Hegel was religious. It leads to God, all these dialectical theories that are in conflict with one another. But he also, but uh, Karl Marx and many other critical theorists after Marx have shown that Hegel's theories is is really important for us to understand how human beings sort of uh, fight one another, and that uh, in order for the sort of slaves or or the farmers uh, can overcome the disparity in their lives, they must actually kill, and, and and you can put that in quotes, kill the master in order to uh, retain and obtain and retain the uh, power that the master had over them. Uh, in other words, the uh, dialectics was a way uh, for understanding how we work in society. We, I was talking before about the bitter competition in capitalist societies. Well, of course, it started already in uh, agricultural societies or what we could call early industrial societies uh, in which poor people were always exploited By the upper classes. And uh, so uh, Hegel also showed, and other philosophers have shown, that people who work the ground, work the soil, are closer to understanding what existence is all about. And they mediate because of their work, they are doing mediating things to the uh, uh, upper classes who control them. it's not until the lower classes develop their own theories that will overcome the theories or ideologies of the upper classes. It's not until uh, the, let us say, lower classes understand that they're being exploited and why, and can gather force, that they can will come into their own. They can't come into their own as long as these exploiters live and that's why they have to be killed off according to hegel and, and maybe according to a lot of people today that uh, as long as people like mr trump in mm-hmm. america and other uh, dictators today are replaced or confronted maybe not killed but taken done away with that people can live better lives and so it's this dialectic that is very important at the heart of all these apprentice tales. So we're getting back to the Brothers Grimm again, or we're getting back to the whole notion of really why did I choose? Uh, though I've forgotten Hegel's name, <laughs> and I've worked on on his theories. Uh, we're getting back to I think what is core one of the core folk tales and fairy tales of the world, and that is the Sorcerer's Apprentice, because it's all about knowledge, sharing knowledge, or keeping knowledge and dominating other people. And how do we undo all of this so that we can share our knowledge and share our knowledge so that we can build societies that are fairer and more just than they are right now?
1: So so in a way... This, should, this will be the last tale we lose this is the last great injustice <laughs> that when we've solved that we'll lose the sorcerer's apprentice
2: yeah, yeah yes exactly exactly if 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 we live in, in a much more real democratic we don't live in a democratic society uh, when we when we really develop a real genuine democratic society we won't be telling tales like that we'll be telling some some other types of tales. But uh, I certainly, unfortunately, won't be around (laughs) to see that. Uh, I can see at least uh, the recent change in, of course, uh, Biden was not the person I voted for, but I I, I didn't vote for Trump, but I wanted somebody much more left, uh, somewhat much more critical than Biden is. But I'm, I'm glad, you know, that we've made this change. The difficulty, of course, is, that there are 70 million or more Americans who still support somebody like Trump. So what do you do in a society like which is bitterly divided and has many ignorant, ridiculous politicians still in Washington uh, who might destroy any hopes that democracy may have? It's a bitter time, very bitter time. And uh, humanity's really in danger right now.
1: Do you, do you think in the clashes though, you know, the cultural clashes that there are, you, you get that dialectic synthesis maybe, you get more answers maybe, or new, new stories, or new yes. things. Mm.
2: Yeah, no, that's, that, that's exactly the way you can, the dialectic does not have to entail the killing of your opponent, the killing of of the, of, of a different ideology, what it, it, it involves, uh, an openness which we don't have in on, on, in the right at this moment. It involves an openness to realize that there's something wrong in the powers that uh, maintain the status quo. So, uh, if if the the party that retains the power, is open to change and to compromise, then we can advance towards something new. But if that's not the case, then it's a, a do or die situation, and we can come back to Burma or Myanmar, whatever it's called, uh, and what's happened, of course, is there's no comp- they, they won't compromise and they're going to kill, kill each other. And, and probably the powers that exist, that, that hold, the people who all hold power in that country, are going to not win. You never win in a situation like this. But they, they will retain uh, the power and exploit these other people. And it's uh, rather despicable what's going on. Many things are, are terribly despicable and disgusting. Mm-hmm in in our world today and i've written on anse bloch the pugnacious philosopher of hope and it's very difficult to have hope today living today but we do we have to try to retain our hope that's the very least that we can do uh, if we're going to retain our humanity
0: yeah and i think that's a very compelling argument for the sort of continued relevance of these
1: fairy tales yes we we we, uh i don't want to monopolize your time too much could we could i ask one more question or are you
2: yeah one 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 more question then i have to prepare sure to (laughs)
1: leave (laughs) (laughs) um i suppose in in a way what you were saying in terms of power relations um if these these stories these you know literal folk tales are taken um especially in in capitalist society they're taken and then Sort of, then disseminated from above. They're not. They're not from the bottom up. They're from the top down. Does that, does that change right. the message? How exactly. does that affect how these stories, uh, that message, that core message that they carry with them, is it affected in any way?
2: Yeah, de- de- definitely. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm a storyteller. Aside from being an, an, a was a professor <laughs> and I've I continue to do storytelling. Uh, I'm not a in quotes professional storyteller, but I developed a theory of working with children to introduce methods uh, so that they could become storytellers of their own lives. And I've worked for close to 30 or 40 years in public schools in America to develop this uh, theory. It's in, in my book Speak, it's called Speaking Out. And you have to speak to power. You have to speak the truth to power uh, and, and continue as, and find all types of original ways. And there are groups, uh, I, you know, I've lived also in the, in the UK, France, Italy, Germany, and the United States on and off in the, in, throughout my um, 80, uh, I'll be 84 this year. So I've lived a long life and I've seen and made and helped and worked with what I would call progressive groups uh, who have tried to do exactly, you know, what you were implying. We have to change the education system. We have to change the way that we socialize children so that they can come to a different understanding of the world than we provide right now. Our education systems that you have to pay to go to schools, it's ridiculous. Uh, it, it, everything that is a really crucial to humanity, health, education, and so on, has to be changed in order for us to recover whatever humanity we had uh, years ago. So we're living in a very precarious, it's a very precarious time. If we don't really get to the bottom, and I mean really get to the bottom, and enable young people and, uh, and people of, of the minorities to speak for themselves and to do things, for, and, we, and if we don't aid them to do, the, uh, to do things for themselves and for other people and to share knowledge, then we're going to uh, destroy whatever civilization we have.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jack.
0: Yeah, thank you. It's been fascinating. Okay, great. Nice talking to
2: you. And you. bye Thank, thank you. you.
0: There
1: you go. That was the interview. Wow.
0: It was such a pleasure to talk to, to uh, Jack, Professor Sipes. I'm not even sure <laughs> dare we call to him Jack.
1: <laughs> to him. Is that too familiar? I don't know.
0: It's very, very familiar. Um, but yeah, really interesting, very illuminating, and very, very in depth.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we went in some very interesting directions that I never would have uh, guessed we would. But it was a really nice way to to interview someone. I suppose we just kind of chatted in a way and saw where the conversation would take us.
0: Yeah no exactly, and actually, the going back to the, the very beginning of the of the episode, and what, he started by talking about Harry Potter. Just bringing that back round because, as you said in the intro, we didn't quite get round to talking about that. Mm. But I I thought that was really interesting the fact mm-hmm. that Harry Potter has come up in the podcast a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mainly because as we're reading the, the fairy tales. Yeah. Uh, There are bits and pieces that I just go, having got Mm -hmm. the Harry Potter books Mm -hmm. fresh in my mind, I go, oh, that's like that from Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's like that thing. Because J.K. Rowling was obviously very influenced by that and and has a good sort of knowledge of fairy tales and sort of basically takes a lot of these things wholesale or bases parts of the books off that. So it has come up a lot. Yet we never even thought to try and figure out what ATU type Harry Potter yeah, was.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I thought that was great. <laughs> it was fascinating. And for him, Jack was sort of saying at the beginning that um, it's a Sorcerer Apprentice story. It's like the thief and his yeah. master. It's yeah. It's the, the pupil and then the master. And he's learning the magic from the master. It's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah. I mean, if anything, I'd like to have learned more about The Sorcerer's Apprentice, because I think, I wouldn't say we gave it short shrift in the Thief and His Master episode, we were interested in it, but it's so interesting just to hear Jack take that concept, that ATU, that idea of the master and the pupil as a folktale, and just how big it is, and how important it is, and how much meaning and meat there is to that as an idea, it's really fascinating.
0: Yeah. No, it was amazing. It was the way his mind works. Like he would take one idea and just take it off in all these different directions. Yeah. You know? It was incredible. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, if I was following him correctly, whether in his intro, he was talking about like phenomenons. Yeah. And yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It was almost like he was hinting at that there's a sort of central paradox that. Yeah. If for something to be a phenomenon, it has to be sort of commonly understood and accepted like adhere to what the capitalist framework you know considers a sort of normal idea but at the same time it's it's popular because it's unusual in this yeah exactly
1: that's exactly it yeah Uh, i'd like to have explored that more that would have been so interesting yeah to be a phenomenon you have to by definition be different but you also have to be accepted within certain limitations yeah, Fasc- exactly. Absolutely fascinating. I mean, there was so much in yeah. there. It was very dense. Yeah, very and dense, talking yeah. about memes as well and mimetics and the m- mimetic nature of fairy tales, I th- I thought was quite interesting. And I, th- I totally get on board with that. And I think he very briefly yeah. mentioned that people might disagree with him, or I got the impression he was saying there's a lot of critique of that. Oh, as yeah, idea. definitely. But to me, it made perfect sense. And in the same way genes do, or on a sort of, you can think of it on an evolutionary biological level ideas spread if they're successful and they jump from person to person yeah. and then they die out if they're not successful or not needed or they don't have meaning I suppose within the social exactly. context. Exactly. And he, uh, that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. It does That's make sense. And he talked a lot about that
0: about the idea of a story dying out when it's no longer needed, the idea yeah. that these stories serve a purpose but if yeah if we somehow as a society manage to fix a particular issue that a story is mm-hmm. aimed at, mm-hmm. that story is either going to evolve into something totally different or just essentially die
1: out. Isn't that it fascinating? Was, yeah, amazing. Yeah. 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 Ah. Well, we. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. I certainly hope so. It's a real treat
0: to... Uh, what to a treat. To him, so.
1: It's been an absolute <laughs> treat. Um, we don't quite know when this will be published, at what point in the schedule, but... Uh, Suffice it to say, we will see you soon. We'll be back to our regular schedule with another lovely Brothers Grimm story, but this time armed with a little bit more knowledge about fairy tales and folklore.
0: Yeah, and in the meantime, keep it grim.
1: Keep it grim. Bye. Bye.
0: if you'd like to support the podcast please head over to patreon.com slash to find out how and also see the range of benefits available as a thank you from us you can of course email us at grimreadingpodcast at gmail.com we're on twitter at grimreadingpod and we're also on instagram and facebook at grimreading you can find us on podbean podbean.com slash grimreading and we also have a website grimreading.wordpress.com the gram.